welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Today, uh, being what it is, a day we've had a lot to, to talk about on the platform, and time is a little scarce this morning. Uh, I don't really have the time to fully move into an expository message, so I'm going to do something topical, in which I take a number of different texts and really answer a question. Next week, by the way, back into the Gospel of Luke, I promise. We're going to center our message around a dimension of communion today that comes out in our thinking as we approach the Lord's table, and that's to meditate on the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what Jesus told us communion was a set piece in our history to do. Every time we come to the table, we are to remember the cross, right? And so we're going to do that today, and we're going to, to talk about the death of Jesus in uh, in its, human, in its human experience, and in terms of how we ought to look at it as people. Uh, there's no doubt that the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth in AD 30, outside Jerusalem, is the most examined death in human history. No question about it. It's been debated. It's been picked apart but it has not been ignored by historians and certainly by people of faith. The most examined death. And and when people have looked at it, uh, two great conclusions have been reached about it. Just in general now, as I'm talking in an introduction before we go to the question that I'm going to answer in my message today, just a little context. People have looked at the death of Christ, whether they are believers or skeptics, non-believers, And they've had to admit two things. Number one, it was uh, the most unfair death in the history of justice when it comes to a death sentence given. Absolutely no question. The most unfair trial and outcome. And, you know, we, we become obsessed as a free society about that kind of thing. Our society is a society in which you're innocent until proven guilty, right? It's a society in which we, we exalt justice and we're fascinated with stories of real people who have suffered an injustice. And I read recently about an individual that uh, is believed to have served the longest prison term in the U.S. for somebody wrongfully convicted. Uh, His name was Ricky Jackson. He was convicted at age 18, along with two others, of murder in the city of Cleveland. And uh, he he served 40 years in prison for it until 2014, when the individual whose testimony convicted him, it was a 12-year-old boy at the time, Ricky was 18, and the witness that convicted him uh, was uh, a 12-year-old boy. This 12-year-old boy came forward, now in his late 50s, and said that he made it up. He recanted his testimony, and uh, Ricky Jackson was set free after 40 years of unjust imprisonment. That made the news across the country, because we 
We are fascinated with injustice. It repulses us. That's nothing compared to the injustice that Christ underwent in preparation for his death, the trials he went through, and the false testimony he endured. Let me compare that with America's greatest case of a wrongful conviction. Just as I set the stage for you, Jesus wasn't wrongfully committed to death or to to his sentence by one false witness in one trial. He was convicted in six false Uh, bogus trials over the space of one night. One night and one early morning. There were six parts to Christ's trial ordeal. Three stages in a religious court with the Jewish authorities and three stages before a Roman court. That would be Pilate and Herod. Now, Jesus was tried by the Jewish courts before Annas, who was a former high priest. He didn't even have authority anymore, but the trials of Jesus started that night with Annas. Then Caiaphas, who was the actual high priest in Israel, who did have authority, he presided over a second trial of Jesus. And finally, the Sanhedrin, you know them to be the 71-person body of of Jewish uh, judges, so to speak, who pronounced judgment in Israel. So he had three ecclesiastical trials, and they were all uh, bogus. They were all carried out against the rules and against the laws that the Jewish nation had set in place to protect defendants from false trials. All of them violated the laws. There were multiple illegalities. In fact, there are six that one legal expert I read this week uh, counted up in the false trials of Jesus by the Jews. Number one, no trial, according to Jewish law, was to be held during the feast time. But what was this time? It was the time of the Passover feast. So they violated their law from the very beginning. Number two, this scholar notes that each member of the court was to vote individually to convict or acquit. They had to get up in front of all the others and cast their vote individually. That's not what happened with Jesus. He was convicted by a voice vote. Totally illegal. Number three, if the death penalty was given, an entire night had to pass before the death sentence was carried out. However, only a few hours passed before Jesus was led to Calvary. Isn't that true? Number four, he notes, no Jewish trial was to be held at night. But the, the trials, uh, the first two trials of Jesus were held before dawn. So hypocrisy reigned that night. Number five, the accused was to be given counsel or representation. He, he had the right to have someone stand with him, an attorney, a scribe, an advocate. Jesus stood alone, didn't he? And number six, the accused was not to be asked self-incriminating questions, but Jesus was directly asked, are you the Christ? And of course, he answered truthfully. So you see, the unfair nature of how Jesus was convicted, thats it's world class. What about the three Roman trials that, that happened after this? The Jews sent Jesus to the Roman authorities because the Jews couldn't condemn anyone to death and carry that out. So it started with Pilate after Jesus uh, was taken uh, by the, out of the Jewish trials. Charges brought against him there were different than the charges in the religious trials. He was charged with inciting people to riot, forbidding the people to pay their taxes, and claiming to be king. All but the third one were false. Now, Pilate, as you know, found no reason to to execute Jesus. That was trial number one. Pilate wanted to acquit him. 
Then he sent him to Herod to try to get him off of his hands. That was false trial number two under the Romans, number five of them all together. Herod mocked Jesus and mistreated Jesus, but wanting to avoid any political liability, he didn't see anything worthy of death in Jesus either. So he sent him back to Pilate again, playing football. And then Pilate was faced with making a decision, and that was the last of the Roman trials, the six of those overall. And Pilate was trying to find a way out. He tried to appease the animosity of the Jews gathered under his portico by scourging Jesus, a, a terrible whipping that laid Christ's back bare and open. And then in a final effort, Pilate offered to, to uh, set Jesus free because he sets a prisoner free every Passover. And who did they ask for? Not Jesus, but Barabbas. So Pilate's efforts failed and Pilate crumbled politically and personally, to the mob. And he granted their demand and surrendered Jesus unlawfully. So the trials of Jesus, the ultimate mockery of justice. So people look at the life of Christ and the death of Christ, and they agree on two things. Number one, it was the most unfair trial in history. If you're a believer, doesn't this deepen the understanding of what he went through for you? But here's the second thing that, that most people agree on. His death was also the greatest unsolved mystery in the history of justice, in the sense that so many were involved. The question has been asked, whose hand was really behind the death of Jesus? In all this mockery of justice, with all these players, whose hand really was responsible for the death of Jesus? That's the question I want to answer in the moments that we have moving through different scriptures to take you to what for some might be a very surprising answer. In your mind right now, without speaking it out loud, who do you believe was fully responsible for the death of Jesus? Let me answer the question in my message by doing three things. I'm going to talk about the reasoning first that people have about his death. Secondly, I'm going to talk about the reality of whose hand was really behind it. And finally, how you can respond to that in your own life, whether you're a skeptic or a believer. So let's look at this together. First of all, the reasoning that different people have come through when they talk about whose hand was really behind the death of Jesus. I mean, really, if you know that much about what the New Testament says, you could probably, in the theater of your mind right now, assemble all the suspects. You can do a Hercule Poirot. Did I get that right? You could be that guy, <laughs> And in the theater of your mind, you could usher all the suspects into the parlor, so to speak. And the people I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes are probably all there in your mind as potential suspects for whose hand was really behind the death of Jesus. Now, when people look at the question, their reasoning touches on a number of different possible answers. First of all, was it the hand of Judas? That's the, the individual that people's thinking goes to right away. And he was the primary player in the beginning of the drama. And the evidence is very strong. Oh, yes, that Judas had a hand in the death of Jesus. And we know this from the way the Gospels run and talk about his, his betrayal and everything that happened, the betrayal of Christ. But 
Judas is particularly implemented because, implicated rather, because he actually made a confession of it. In Matthew 27, after he had betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders, after Jesus had been taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, the realization of what Judas had done to an innocent Christ fell upon him. And in Matthew 27, 3, Judas goes back to the, the Jewish authorities, back to the temple precinct, and he says, I have sinned. He said in in verse 27, verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, the scripture says Jesus was Christ's unique betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? That's exactly what we wanted to manipulate you into. See to it yourself. Who was behind the death of Jesus? Well, Judas believed he was. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And hours later, he took his own life. The realization of that. So was it the hand of Judas? Well, yes, but there was someone else. In a sense, you could say that Judas, in his betrayal and in his action, only started the clock of the suffering of Jesus. Well, not, if not Judas, completely who else? People come pretty quickly to the second conclusion or question, was it at the hand of the Jewish nation? Whose hand was behind the death of Christ? Well, was it the hand of the Jewish nation then? If Judas just started the clock ticking and moving, and this has been a conclusion of many people over, over history. Some say it was a subtext to how Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, was designed and written, blaming the Jewish nation as having the primary responsibility. But let me sadly caution you about such a conclusion. You see, over the years, the Jewish people have have usually borne the brunt of this blame. They've been the, the automatic answer to the question, whose hand was behind the death of Jesus? Well, it was the Jews. And in fact, a lot of energy and, and antipathy, anger has, has been generated against the Jewish people because of this over the centuries. It's been used to justify everything from hate crimes to holocausts against the Jewish people. I'll tell you right now, that's bigotry. And it stems from a satanic, not a noble principle. Certainly not from any genuine love from Christ. Even though there is a sense in which the Bible in the Old and New Testaments both say that Israel had a part. Don't get me wrong. The Jewish nation was not guiltless by any means. In Isaiah chapter 49, 7, the scripture says that he was one whom the nation abhorred. That was a prophecy that Jesus, because of his preaching of his cross, would become someone whom the nation of Israel abhorred. And that's true. Isaiah 53, 3, what I mentioned to you earlier I mentioned that they hid their faces from him in the hour of his death. Psalm 22, centuries before, would prophesy that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, would be despised by the people. So all of that is true. And in the New Testament, we have proof also that the nation of Israel was stirred up and they had a high level of hatred toward Jesus 
in the large, because it wasn't just the, the high priests, it wasn't just the Sanhedrin, it was the people gathered in the courtyard. Do you remember? And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 21, it said that the Jewish people gathered there called out, crucify him. Now that is fact. So can we say it was the hand of the Jewish nation that was behind the death of Christ? I could say in a sad sense, in a certain way, yes, but there was someone else. Judas may have started the clock that moved Christ through his suffering. The Jewish nation, I could say, then moved the madness forward. But there was someone else. Well, then I know where your mind is running in the room of suspects. Well, it would have to be the Roman Empire. It would have to be Pilate all the way down to the soldier that lifted the crossbeam. Had to be them. Well, yes, once again, the evidence is very strong that they had a hand in the suffering of Jesus. But were they more culpable than others? They were culpable along with others, you see. They did have a part to play in this that was designed by God over the centuries. You see, prophecy indicated that Jesus would die by crucifixion. You can read all about it in Psalm 22, which was written centuries before crucifixion was ever invented. And crucifixion was perfected by the Romans and used in a 100-year window. that that was perfectly surrounding the time when Jesus lived. So God chose to crucify his son, and he rose up an empire that perfected the way to do it, and he called his son out of eternity into time in exactly the 100-year window where it would happen. So yes, the Romans had to be involved. Pontius Pilate did sentence him to death. None of this would have gone to a final point if Pilate hadn't crumbled in his conscience and in his character and made the ultimate decision, lead him off to a cross. So was it the hand of Judas? He started the clock. Was it the hand of the Jews? They moved the madness. And was it the hand of the Romans? Yes, because crucifixion was a Roman method of crucifixion. When the Romans tro- Roman troops took Jesus and lifted the crossbar onto the top of his cross and dropped it so his shoulders dislocated, the Romans had a hand in it too. They raised the crossbeam. They brought the official death to pass. So yes, was it the hand of the Romans? Yes, but there was someone else. You're saying, I'm I'm running out of obvious suspects. Certainly, these horrible people in these horrible moments did this horrible thing. Well, others have answered and said, not so fast. They have said that, yes, it was the hand of Judas, and yes, the hand of the Jewish nation was more than involved, and yes, the hand of the Roman Empire was finally involved, but in a sense, it was the hand of all humanity. And maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've concluded this. Was it the hand of all of us, born and unborn, sinners all, that created this? Some say that in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, there was a dimension of, of repentance in his own life 
in terms of where he finally laid the responsibility for the crucifixion. You may not know that in the scene where a hand holds the nail in the wrist of Christ and a hammer comes down, you may not know this, but Mel Gibson slipped himself into the stage there and it was his own hand holding the nail and his own hand bearing down the hammer. And he let that be known to say that he believed that he was responsible for the death of Jesus and that we were responsible for the death of Jesus. Could that be true? Oh, yes. The scripture, in fact, speaks to this. One expert I I read over the last few weeks said this. In fact, the murder of Jesus was a vast conspiracy involving Rome, involving Herod, involving all the Gentiles, and involving the Jewish Sanhedrin and the leaders and the people of Israel. Diverse groups who, apart from this event, were seldom fully in accord with one another about anything. Think about that. In fact, it's significant that the crucifixion of Christ is the only historical event where all those factions work together to achieve a common goal. The fact that all of them worked together from Judas to the Sanhedrin to Pilate on the porch brings out an illustration in which this author says, therefore all were culpable and all bear the guilt together. The Jews as a race were no more or less blameworthy than the Gentiles. In a sense, because they all gathered and colluded together, sinful humanity gathered. We're all represented there. Interestingly, in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, when Peter was preaching after the resurrection, he said, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, he's praying now and talking to God the Father, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together against him. So Peter, in his own words, says, It was everyone. So there's really no justification to try and fix the blame for Jesus' death. Listen to me on one people group. This was, in essence, he writes, a corporate act of sinful humanity against God. All are guilty together. So as you walk through the reasoning that people have around the death of Jesus, we kind of come to the end of the human train of thought here, don't we? Was it the hand of Judas? Yes, but there was someone else. Was it the hand of the Jewish nation? Yes, but there was someone else. Was it the hand of the Roman Empire? Yes, but there was someone else. Well, then, was it the hand of all humanity? And your thinking would stop there, and you would say, I guess it was all of us. And now you've emptied the room of suspects, haven't you? Now you're at the end of your ability to think this through. We drove the nails, as Gibson illustrated. It must have been all of us. And I would say to you, yes... But there was someone else. How do I answer that reply? Well, let's take a look secondly at the reality that the scripture says was fully behind the death of Jesus. The reality about his death is this. Listen to me. The hand of God the Father was ultimately behind it all. The hand of God the Father was ultimately behind it all. 
And amen is the right response because if his hand wasn't behind it all, the death of Jesus would have been just some other unfortunate miscarriage of justice. He would have just been another innocent man who died in the heap of history. But because God the Father was behind it and because God the Son is Almighty God, it's an eternity-changing death. Let's look at this together. Now, I must admit, from a human idea of justice and relationship, my mind is staggered by the thought that God, the loving Father that I know him to be, would ultimately have pressed his son to death. My mind is staggered by it, but my Bible teaches it. So many places we can go. But let's go back to Isaiah, where we began in the early part of the service. Our text over our offering was Isaiah 53. Let me go farther down to Isaiah 53.10. Listen to this. The scripture says through the prophet about the death of Jesus the Messiah, listen, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Whose hand was ultimately behind the death of Jesus? The hand of God the Father. He superintended every wicked hand, every wicked moment, every deceived mind, every crumbling conscience, and every driven nail. It was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah God, to crush Jesus. He has put him to grief. So this is what the scripture declares. Your mind may not accept it or even have conceived of it, but this is what the scripture declares. That's Old Testament. You say, well, what's the New Testament declare? Glad you asked. Acts chapter 4. Peter is in... In, in, in his declaration of what happened later after the ascension, Peter said in 427, which you've already read, for truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. He's talking kind of in a rhetorical prayer frame to the Father, whom you, Father, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all the people you put into the room. Listen to this, though, next verse, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Whose hand was behind the death of Jesus Christ? Unquestionably, the hand of God the Father. Now, Peter not only spoke that under revelation, but Jesus had actually described it on the last night of his life. When he was in the garden... And Judas had come and planted a kiss of betrayal on his cheek. And the authorities surrounded him to take him to the false trials that would follow. Jesus did not say, I can't believe this is happening. Jesus did not say, this is not how I planned for this to go. Jesus did not stand there and declare, wait a minute, I think you're making a mistake. I am innocent. Much of what everybody is saying about me has been overdrawn and misunderstood. Please, mercy. Oh, no. They came and said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. You remember what happened? They were blown back by the power of his godhood, veiled in flesh, and they fell to the ground. 
But they stood standing around him with their swords and their clubs. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Whose hand was ultimately behind the death, the trials, the suffering of Jesus? It was the hand of the Father affirmed by the words of Jesus. All this, verse 56, has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So whose hand was behind the death of the Lord Jesus? By the mouth of the Lord Jesus, his Father. Now listen, that doesn't for a moment lessen the evil of it all. And it doesn't for a moment mean that all the people that we talked about earlier, all the human participants were not fully responsible for their hatred and their wickedness and their injustice and their sin. It doesn't lessen the evil, but it does reveal the purpose, you see. Because Scripture not only says that God the Father authored this, prophesied it, arranged it, his hand was ultimately behind it all. It says that there was a phenomenal reason for this. God was not arbitrary about the suffering and sacrifice of his only son. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 10 again. It starts by stating, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God the Father was behind his suffering and his death. Go to the next verse. Last part. What were the purposes? Christ's soul made an offering for guilt. Look at the end of verse 11. To make many to be accounted righteous and to bear their iniquities. Do you know the purpose behind God the Father allowing and orchestrating the death of his perfect son? Do you know the purpose? No, you don't know what the purpose is. If you know Jesus Christ, you are the purpose. It was to bear your iniquities, verse 11 of Isaiah 53, so that you can be counted righteous. That's the great reason behind it all. In a sense, you could say that the death of Jesus Christ even pleased the Father. Now, some of you may be saying, that's a line I cannot go past. And I'll talk more about why that's a reaction in the moment. One author says this, in what sense was God pleased by the death of his son? How could such an incredible concept even come into our minds about a God of love? He was pleased, the father was, by the redemption that was accomplished. He was pleased by that his eternal plan of salvation was thus fulfilled. He was pleased with the sacrifice of his son who died so that others might have eternal life. For all the evil in the crucifixion, it brought about an infinite good, infinite In fact, here was the most evil act ever perpetrated by sinful hearts. The sinless Son of God, holy God himself in human flesh, was unjustly killed after being subjected to the most horrific tortures that could be devised by wicked minds. It was the evil of all evils, the worst deed human depravity could ever devise, and the most vile evil that has ever been committed. 
And yet from it came the greatest good of all time, the redemption of unnumbered souls and the demonstration of the glory of God as a saving God. Take a long look at what happened at Calvary. The agony there was of the just for the unjust, the greatest good of all time. That's the reason. The hand of God the Father was ultimately behind every human motion and he did it for your eternal rescue. Well, there's the story. How do you respond? How do you respond? Let me, let me talk to three groups of listeners as I close. Perhaps you're someone who's somewhat skeptical. You're not a believer. In fact, you've been bothered by the claims of Christianity for a long time. And I would say you're someone who might be in conflict with his death. What do I mean by that? You might believe that history is, is accurate when it says Jesus lived, died, and was crucified outside Jerusalem in A.D. 30 on a cross. Most historians do believe that. In fact, almost all of them do. So you may have to admit that history says this all happened. But when you hear the Christians say there wasn't just a human injustice, there was a divine reason for the death of Jesus, you get offended. And there are many people today that do in the non-believing world today. They say, you know what? I don't want to even talk to you about Christianity because it's a bloody religion. And your God has blood dripping from his hands. Look what he did to his son. Often you hear non-Christians characterize the Christian God as a bloodthirsty tyrant who killed his own son on the cross. And, and I've had this told to me, and maybe that's where you are today as a skeptic. That's, that's fine, but hear me out. I've had people tell me I cannot and will not ever worship a God that would kill his own son. Maybe this is in your mind right now because you believe you're morally superior to the God of the Bible who would do this. And you say, anyone who would do that to his own son is a God I can't respect. He's a bloodthirsty, wicked God. I can't believe in the Christian God. He did that to his own son. So John 3.16 to you is not a hopeful verse. It's a shameful verse. Except he didn't do it to his own son. Because you see, Jesus was not forced to die by his father. He willingly laid down his life, not in the world's greatest act of ugly murder, but as the ultimate act of sacrifice for people. See, this is, is the heart of the argument you may have never heard. God the Father did not do that to an unwilling, innocent son. Oh, he did it to a son who had agreed willingly to go to that cross. And that changes everything. You see, you read this in the scripture. John chapter 10 Jesus said it himself in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I know who I'm about to die for. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and look, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm not a victim here. This wasn't forced on me by some bloodthirsty character of a God. I lay down my life. Go down to verse 18. No one takes it from me. 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity committed in a holy plan to do a holy work. Oh, this is no injustice. This is perfect love. I have authority to lay it down, Jesus said. That's why he said, don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels down in this moment? But I will not, because this is the love plan of the Trinity. He says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father in eternity past, the brokenness of human sin, understood to be unfolding and coming. And in some way, I can't describe to you as a human preacher, the perfect trinity of love agreed upon a plan and set it in motion to send the perfect dear son of God to a cross he didn't deserve, to die a death you couldn't take, to pay a penalty you couldn't pay, to rise from the dead, to show his eternal power over life and death so that you, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, under the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, could be stirred in your heart, could turn to Jesus Christ and be eternally rescued from everything you had created as your eternal sentence. And God, the Holy Trinity, set it all in motion. And Jesus said, I received a charge from my father to go and be the sacrifice for it all. And he did it. That's Jesus. That's our mighty Lord. Not a victim on a tree, but a victor over it all. And knowing that God the Father's hand was over every footfall of it. So if you're in conflict with his death, I challenge you, be in conflict no longer. Turn and understand that it was a perfect death for you, my friend. Quickly. Maybe you're not in conflict with his death, but you're simply curious about his death. You, you don't know what to do with it, but it stirs you and you can't get rid of it. You've never trusted in Jesus, but you're curious about this. It won't let you alone. Well, now, my friend, you understand the greatest Bible verse in the Bible, the one I read to begin, a verse that will save you. For God so loved the world, put your name in there that he gave his only son, that whoever, put your name in there, believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. That is your great opportunity. He gave his life for you. Will you give your life to him as Savior? You see, it's all there. If you're in conflict with his death, oh, it can be resolved just like that. If you're curious about his death, step from curiosity to faith. And now maybe you're a believer, as so many are in this audience who've responded to the word today. If you're convinced about his death, you've claimed his death, you know he saved you, you know you're eternally saved, you know that he's your Lord and Savior, and you're now walking with him, what can I say for you? Well, just as God was in the control of all the difficult details, the ugly moments, the deep and sorrowful pain, and the unanswerable process that he put his son through, now as you're as a child of God, God the Father is in perfect control over all the events in your life too. Even the painful and unjust ones that lead to a purpose that God himself has. Jesus knew the purpose and it sustained me through it all. You're not almighty God. You don't know all the purposes for how God allows injustice and pain and suffering into your life. You have to take it by faith, but it's, it's a great place to take it. 
Romans 8, 28, for God causes all things to work together for what? Good. To those who are the called, to those who belong to him. My friend, as a believer today, the cross and God's sovereignty shows you that he's over every detail of what you may be suffering today. And you can go to the same God who saved you, and he's a God that will comfort you. Now we come to the table of grace. Now we come to a place where you can take the weight of all he did and the greatness of all he accomplished, and you can offer him gratitude. 